You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. The most viral video ad in the history of the planet was released last year. So maybe you saw it. It was an advertisement for soap. But it actually wasn't about soap. It was more about identity. So here's how it went. They took us into a sun-drenched loft in San Francisco. Open floor plan. A lot of space. There was just a, a man sitting at an easel. He was an FBI forensic sketch artist. Behind his back, there was a, a thin curtain, and on the other side of the curtain, there was a woman who had her back to the curtain, and these two had never seen each other before. But he was asking the woman to describe her face as he tried to sketch uh, who she was, just from these descriptions. And so he would give her prompts. He would say, now, t- tell me about your chin. And sort of anxiously, she describes her chin. Did this with several women, and in each case, uh, they noticed the women tend to be a little bit negative is how they characterize themselves. They'll say things like, that's a protruding chin, or you know, a big nose, or dark rings around my eyes. And uh, completed the image, put that piece of paper aside, pulled out another one, and drew a second sketch of the same woman, but this time she wasn't the one to describe herself. They brought somebody in to describe the woman for the forensic artist. So he draws a second image. When he's done, they take the two images, pull the the curtain aside, and they present them uh, back to the subject and ask, which one do you like better? And this is when the tears start to flow because in every instance, what we find is that these women find themselves less beautiful to themselves than other people uh, see them as. It's the ad. That's all it is. But uh, it has been translated, is uploaded in 25 languages. In its first month, it was viewed by 114 million people in 110 countries around the world. This thing really, really touched a nerve. And the question is, why? Well, uh, New York Times covered this phenomenon, interviewed uh, advertising vice president. She said she thinks it's because, and this is a quote, women undervalue themselves. Women undervalue themselves. They asked their mother in Phoenix if she knew what was going on, why this was so impactful. And she said, well, the video gets you to stop and think about how we think about ourselves. And so tonight I want to ask you how you think about yourself. How do you answer the question, who am I? It's not an easy question to answer, but we wrestle with it constantly. And I want to put this before you because our text will, I think Jesus Christ will, through our text tonight, uh, ask you this question. And what I want to suggest to you is that the power of Jesus is really the ability to know who you really are. That's the power of Jesus, the ability to know who you really are. And I'm going to ask you again later on in the sermon, do you have what I would call a grunt identity or a grace identity? A grunt identity is an identity that you make or maintain for yourself, grunt. A grace identity is an identity that you receive as a gift whether you deserve it or not, grace. 
All right, well, let's open up our Bibles to this text. It's John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. And you find it there on page 862 if you're opening up the Pew Bible. John 1, 11 through 13. We believe here everyone's a minister, so let's stand and read God's Word aloud together. And uh, when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading His Holy Word. He came to what was His own, and His own people did not accept Him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. What I want to share with you tonight is the power of Jesus and then two identities, and then finally, the authority of a child. The authority of a child. What you notice, I hope, as you read that in verse 12, is it says he, and that's Jesus. Jesus gives power to become. Jesus gives power to become somebody. And that's what each of us desperately wants. We want to become somebody who is somebody. We want to become somebody who is okay. We want to become somebody who really matters. We just have this sense deep down inside that that's our destiny. And yet the claim is that Jesus, and I believe Jesus alone, has the power, gives us the power to become. So when I talk about the power of Jesus, what I'd really like to do is convince you uh, that Jesus alone has the power uh, to make us become somebody. And in order to do that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share a story, a personal story, and then an analogy. The power of Jesus. So first, the, the personal story. This Monday, I uh, was uh, attending a dinner that was for my high school daughter's cross-country team. It was an end-of-the-season kind of a thing. And um, great celebration, but as I walked in the doors at Buca de Pepo, uh, over there at South Lake Union, they have a back room there, big room, all of a sudden my social anxieties start to crop up. A lot of people that I don't know. And you know what? I look around and it's not assigned seats, so it's just chairs and tables and a whole bunch of people, and I go, oh my gosh, where are we going to sit? Who are we going to sit with? It's like high school all over again for dad. Um, the way I usually resolve that is just to get it over with as quickly as possible. So I saw a couple that was seated way over here. Woman, she looked nice. And so I just, my wife and I just grabbed her. We just ran, sat right next to her. Now, here's the thing. My social anxieties, I look around a room like that, and I see people who are attractive people, people who look like their lives are all put together in a way I wish mine was. I see people who look really, really smart. And um, this is kind of an occupational hazard. Sometimes as pastors, we think other people have really cool jobs. Now, let me say something about my job. I love my job, and the greatest honor of my life is to be your pastor. But when I, when I talk to somebody else, and, and, and they talk about their job, let me put it this way. When your job, if your job ever becomes your identity, then you have a very, very fragile identity. Okay, why? Because there's always somebody who has a more impressive job than you do. There always is. 
I mean, you could say, well, what about Warren Buffett? Well, that's impressive. But I think Warren Buffett probably wants Bill Gates' job, right? Bill Gates got to start this cute, cool company. He's got the foundation and all that. And I think Bill Gates would probably like to have Mother Teresa's job, right? I mean, she's, you know, serving people all the time. And I think Mother Teresa would probably like to have Warren Buffett's job, right? She'd think of all the, the good things she could do with all that wealth, right? So the point is, if, 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 if your identity is built on your job, then it's very fragile. Be very careful. You'll, so anyways, I sit down next to this woman, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, here it comes. What's, within two sentences, she's telling me about what she does for a living. And I'm hoping it's not too terribly impressive. But you know what she says? Yeah, I work over at University of Washington. Oh, no, not University of Washington. I'm, I'm hoping maybe she's, you know, I don't know, if it works in the cafeteria or something. She says, uh, so what do you do? She says, well, I, uh, I'm a professor in the medical school. And I said, so, well, all right, well, what do you teach? She teaches obstetric pharmacy. And I nod with a blank look on my face. Obstetric pharmacy. What is that? She said, well, obstetric pharmacy is basically the science of how uh, the uh, chemi chemicals uh, in a mother interact or don't interact with her child in utero. That was interesting to me. And it was doubly interesting because this happened on Monday night. And I wonder if anybody here knows that there was a celebration in the church calendar on Monday night. Does anybody remember? Any Roman Catholics here? Monday night is the was the Feast of Immaculate Conception. And that's kind of interesting for, for a professor who has this job. I mean, let me just remind you about the Immaculate Conception. By the way, I had to admit to her, I don't believe in the Immaculate Conception. Um, most people think that the Immaculate Conception... Uh, is that that uh, that Jesus was born of a virgin Mary, and that's that's not correct. Uh, that's the virgin birth, and I do believe in that. The Immaculate Conception is the notion that Mary herself was conceived in her mother's womb without sin. Now, why would anyone need to believe that? Well, uh, those who believe that do so because they want a Jesus who doesn't have a fallen human nature. Follow me here. This is going to pay off. If you can follow this, you might understand perhaps for the first time why Christmas is important, okay? If Mary's mother transmits to Mary a fallen sinful nature, when Mary is in the womb, she will do the same thing to her son, Jesus. And I said, well, I don't, I don't believe that. I actually believe Jesus had a fallen sinful nature. And she said, do you believe Jesus sinned? And I said, no. no. And that's the beauty of it. In fact, for Jesus to be Savior to anybody, two things needed to be true. He had to have a nature just like us, as prone to sin, as tempted by sin as ours is. The other thing, though, is he had to live very differently than us. Right? At every point in which he's tempted, he has to do the right thing. The thing that a good son would do to a loving father, for a loving father. He had to be the perfect son at every moment of his life. And she goes, oh, wow, I never looked at it that way. If that's true, then God took a huge risk by taking on a human nature. And I never thought of it that way myself. I thought, that's true, isn't it? If at any point in Jesus' life, at any point, temptation turns over to sin, then all is lost. But, but if he can be perfectly obedient through his whole life, then in all of human history, we have one instance, only but one instance, of a human being who lives like a child of God.
Now, that's my personal story. Let me give you the analogy. Again, a little wonkish, but if you follow it, I think it'll be a payoff. Ebola. We're praying for West Africa. There's a, an experimental therapy that you're familiar with. It's trans, blood transfusions. And the idea is that, you know, there's some, I don't know, the percentage of Ebola victims will actually survive. And those that survive, they overcome the disease, and they're healthy at that point. And so the idea is, what happens if we would draw some of their blood, transfuse it into a current Ebola patient, on the assumption that there's, there's some properties to that blood that have been victorious. And we, we don't even have, we have theories, but we don't even know what those properties might be. But take that victorious blood with all of its properties and infuse it into a current, uh, currently sick person infected with Ebola. And the idea would be that that victorious blood would overtake the blood circulation of that patient, and they also then would become victorious. So we're actually, we're actually doing this right now. What if that's what John is trying to say here when he says Jesus gave the power to become children of God? I mean, what if God in heaven in eternity past looks at this creation of his and he says, man, I, I, I see a humanity that has a virus that's uh, universal. It's called sin. And, and it's got 100% mortality. It leads to death. And I, the problem with that is I love these creatures. I, I created man and woman to be my sons and daughters. And I gave them the universe to be a home in which I could live with them as a family. And now I watch, and sure enough, one by one, every one of them, at some point in their life, begins to manifest the symptoms. That is to say that they turn away from me, the source of life. And they will, therefore, eventually die. Maybe days, maybe years, but they perish. And God there speaking to the Son in the presence of the Holy Spirit says, what in the world can we do about this? And that's when the Son of God raises his hand and says, what if, what if there could be just one human being who lives like a, a child of God, who, who is infected with the virus, who has the sin nature, but who resists it at every point and overcomes its temptation so that by the end we have a, a, a healthy human genome that can be inserted into the bloodstream of humanity. Send me. And so the Son of God was born, and he didn't have to be, but he was born as a human being. I think that's what John is saying, something like that. God was born the child of a human in order to make humans the children of God. That's what Christmas is all about. You couldn't become a child of God unless Jesus gives us the power to do so. So that's the power of Jesus. Let's move on and talk a little bit about these two identities. Because the question remains, so Jesus does that, well, what about us? How does that impact uh, our identity? What will you do with this? Remember, we all ask the question, who I am, and if this vice president for advertising is correct, most people, not just women, most people undervalue themselves. But Jesus offers us a choice. These two identities, a grunt identity or a grace identity. 
Again, a grunt identity is one that you make or maintain for yourself. And I call it a grunt activity because making your own identity or maintaining it takes a lot of effort. It's really work, isn't it? You gotta grunt. And the culture will help us. Our culture says this, if you wanna be somebody, identity, you have to do something, activity. If you wanna be somebody, you gotta do something. And the problem is that you can never do enough to be the person you know you were created to be. You can't. There's an interesting phrase. There's an interesting um, syntax we use these days. And I'm not going to say it annoys me, but I am an English major and I notice it all the time. Here's what we say. We say, I don't want to be the guy who. Have you noticed this new way of talking? It's like, instead of saying, I, I, I don't want to get lost, we say, I don't want to be the guy who gets lost. Now that's interesting to me. What does it show? It shows that in our culture right now, we are not able to disassociate what we do from who we are. So if I do get lost, then I'm the guy who gets lost. See, what I do so easily becomes an identity in our culture. That's a grunt identity. So let's talk a little bit about this uh, soap commercial. I think the company never mentions soap, but I think the company wants to associate itself with people who empower women. That's attractive to us. But I want to raise the question, does that ad really empower women? It's a beautiful ad, by the way, and I recommend you see it if you haven't. But does it empower women? I don't think it succeeds. I have, by the way, I have two problems with the ad. The first is, what about the guys? It's a very feminine ad. And where are the guys in all of this? So I'm really glad someone made a parody. And I want to make sure that you go see the parody of this ad. It's really worth, it's really worth watching because whereas the women sit there and they describe themselves in less flattering terms, the men sit there and describe themselves in more flattering terms. They have better depictions of themselves. And, and when you, when they pull back the curtain, uh, the guy on the left looks like Brad Pitt or George Clooney. And, uh, and then they show the picture on the right. And the guys also start crying at that point. You see these men weeping. Because what they've done is they've invited women to come in and describe them for the second picture. And uh, they look like the Unabomber or Pee Wee Herman or something like that. The women are saying things like, um, he looks kind of like he would smell, if that makes any sense. <laughs> the guys are just bawling. That's my first problem. Is I, you know, what about the guys? But the other problem I have with it is I think there's an element of unintentional hypocrisy uh, in the ad. If the purpose of the ad is to empower women, then I have two problems with that. Uh, one is that it holds to upholds a very narrow bandwidth of what beauty is. Certain body types, certain images, and these become the models. And one uh, commentator said, well, what happened if I actually look like the picture on the left? Some women do. And can they not be valuable because they don't match our cultural stereotype of what's beautiful? And that's a problem. On the other hand, and I think even more serious, is the idea that women are only valuable if they're beautiful. And that's absolutely implicit in, 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 this, uh, in this film. So rather than empower women, I think the, uh, this ad actually puts women under a power and a very hostile power that forces them to grunt if they want to be or see themselves as valuable in our world today. Guys, too, do we have to look like Brad Pitt or George Clooney to be somebody? This is a grunt identity, and it will never empower you. Just think for a second about what it looks like to have, quote, unquote, made it in our culture in Seattle today. 
Doesn't Seattle have these icons that would sort of give you an identity or cachet within our culture? What would they be? Driving a Tesla, uh, maybe? Owning a home in Ballard? Oh, it'd be so cool to own a home in Ballard, right? You know you really are someone in Seattle. Or you're an expert on bands or beers. Uh, or maybe it's your job. Maybe you work at the Gates Foundation, you know, or have a parking spot, uh, the University of Washington, or something like that. All of these can, in fact, confer a sense of identity, but be careful. It's a grunt identity. It's going to demand that you work really hard, and there's no guarantee you'll ever achieve it. So you'll never really know if you really are who God made you to be. Let's talk about the alternative then. This is the one that Jesus offers us, and I call it a grace identity. It's one that you receive as a gift, whether you deserve it or not. It's very stable. It's very robust. John offers us the backstory to Jesus in his gospel in the first 18 verses. Uh, It's John's prologue, and that's what we're looking at. The other gospels, they describe the origin of Jesus in terms of Jesus being the son of Mary. Right? That's the familiar story. But John goes way back and describes Jesus not so much as the son of Mary, though he wouldn't deny that. He wants us to see Jesus before he was born as the son of God. That's who he was, the son of God for all eternity past. Didn't have humanity, but he was the son of God. Now, uh, this appears in our verse, in verse 12, implicitly when John starts talking about the children of God. It appears explicitly in verse 18 where We're told that Jesus is the only Son of God, or the only begotten, as the King James says, Son of God, the only begotten, Son of God. That's Jesus' identity, Son of God. And I want to say it's a grace identity, and it's a very powerful identity. Why do we say it's a grace identity? Remember that time when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus at the beginning of his ministry? John pulls him up out of the waters of the Jordan River, and apparently the heavens part, and the, the Holy Spirit comes and rests on Jesus and looks like a dove. And, and then there's a voice, and it's the voice of God. What does the voice say? You are my son, beloved. With you I am well pleased. Mark 1. Now that is powerful. You are my son. Beloved, with you I'm well pleased. I say it's a grace identity because notice that doesn't come at the end of Jesus' ministry, it comes at the beginning. Jesus hasn't done a thing, he hasn't even tried to deserve it yet. But at that point, God the Father says, I want you to have an identity, I want you to know who you are, and I want you to know that you're my son. That's your identity. I love you, and I'm delighted in you, even before you do anything. This is a grace identity. And God wants to give you this same identity through Jesus Christ. I say it's a powerful identity because if we go back into the Old Testament, we discover even more of the backstory to this uh, Son of God uh, idea. The favorite psalm, one of the favorite psalms of the New Testament writers, was Psalm 2. It's one of our favorites at Christmas time. Why do the nations rage? It's in Handel's Messiah. That's the beginning of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 gives us a picture of the nations around Israel ganging up on Israel, uh, getting ready to attack the king of Israel. In the middle of this psalm, God speaks directly to the king. And here's what he says in verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
familiar language, isn't it? The father says to the king of Israel, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And originally this is thought to have applied to the king of Israel, but in time the New Testament writers think, oh, this is talking about Jesus, the son of David, on the eternal throne of God's kingdom. And so just think about the power of this identity, that the, the culture centers are ganging up on you. The centers of power around you are moving in on you with malicious intent. They're accusing you. They're trying to break your morale. And the king of Israel says, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? The world's falling apart. I'm in deep trouble. The psalm says, heaven laughs. Heaven laughs. You're kidding me. Really? You think so? And that's when God says, think about who this king is. This is my son. You are my beloved son. I'm the creator of time and space. And as long as you're my son, you can let any foreign king uh, attack you. You belong to me. You are, of course you're secure. Of course you're safe. Of course you're important and valuable. You're my son. What parent wouldn't do anything to secure their son? You want to know how valuable you are? When God says, I want to call you my daughter, I want to call you my son, there is no greater value. So think about how this identity can work in our lives. If your identity is your relationship, for example, and your boyfriend's putting pressure on you to be more sexually active than you're comfortable, you know what? It's very hard for you to say no to that. Because if the relationship's your identity and you lose the relationship, you lose your identity. On the other hand, if you know that you're a child of God, you'll say, hey, I really like this guy, but I don't have to do that. Why? Because I know who I am. I know who I am, and also I know what a child of God would do. And you'd be willing to risk the relationship to do the right thing because you know who you are. Likewise, if you're an employee and your manager tries to put you into an ethical bind, if your job is your identity, well, then it's going to be very hard for you not to do the unethical thing. On the other hand, if you could say, I know who I am. I'm a child of God. I don't have to do that. I don't have to. And you might even be willing to risk your job in order to do the right thing. It's the power of a grace identity. Well, we've talked about the power of Jesus, these two identities, the alternatives that we have. Let's finally talk about how we could claim a grace identity. This is the practical part, the authority of a child, the authority of a child. And I think John hints at what he elaborates later on. I think in verses 11 through 13 in chapter 1, he describes something that he's going to uh, flesh out in greater detail in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, where John, the evangelist, introduced us to a man named Nicodemus. And Jesus wants to move Nicodemus from a grunt identity to a grace identity. How does he do that? John tells us Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, a, a leader of the Jews which means his identity was grounded in a social construct. He knew who he was only if his people would give him permission to be their leader and their ruler. It's a grunt identity. We can see it coming. We can tell, furthermore, that it's a grunt identity because Nicodemus comes at night. That's important because it's a fragile identity. He comes at night because if any of his people would see him associating with Jesus, then he might lose his identity and no longer be their leader. So grunt identity. Now, when he comes to Jesus, he starts the conversation and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, you must be a teacher from God. 
Now, um, why is he doing that? Essentially, what he's saying to Jesus is, hey, Jesus, you're a teacher, I'm a teacher, let's be colleagues, okay? Let's be colleagues. Let's tell stories about our students. And Jesus, as politely as I believe is possible, says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, let me stop you right there. You may teach, but I'll never see you primarily as a teacher. And he says, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you must have the identity of a child. You must have a birth as mysterious as my own birth. A birth that comes, as the text says, not of blood or the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. A birth that is imagined, conceptualized in heaven, but conceived on earth in your life. I have the power to give you, to make you a child of God, a son of God, just like I am. And of course, Nicodemus is confused by this. He says, wait a minute, my head is swimming. How could that actually happen? I'm a grown man. Jesus said, what I want you to do is take credit for my birth. I want you to believe that God so loved the world. This is the conversation with Nicodemus. He gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, this word power here is the word for authority. That's why I want to, we're talking about the authority of a child. If you look again at verse 12, you'll see the word power. He gave power to be... There are two Greek words for power. One emphasizes strength, which would be about grunting. And if you have, if you have that kind of power, then you have to have it in yourself. It has to be your own strength or you don't have access to it. But the other word for power is the word that John uses here, and it can also be translated authority. In fact, it's more commonly translated authority. He gave the right, some of our translations, to become children of God. Now that's interesting because authority can be delegated. Authority is basically drawing from somebody else's power. What Jesus is inviting Nicodemus to do to, so that he can move from a grunt identity to a grace identity is to basically take credit for Jesus' power, Jesus' strength. To, to talk as though Jesus' strength is his own strength, his own power. Jesus' health is his health. Jesus' life is his life. Jesus' identity is his identity. That's what it means to believe. Just a quick uh, illustration of this. Let's say I give my son my credit card and I send him down to U Village to do some shopping. Okay, this is totally hypothetical. I would never do this. But say, here's my credit card, you know, go have some fun. And so he does. He goes down and he buys all his great presents for mom and dad because he loves us so much. And then he comes up to the counter and um, the person says, okay, it's going to be hundreds of dollars. How's he going to pay? Because, you know, my son, he's got nothing. He's got no money whatsoever. I mean, so he can turn his pockets inside out and there's nothing there. And yet, all he has to do is hold out this little piece of plastic that has my name on it. My name on it. And at that point, see, I've got lots of money. I'm rich compared to my son, tons of money. But at that point, I have authorized him. I have delegated my credit to him so that he can draw on it in his current situation. That's what it means to believe in the name of Jesus, to claim Jesus' identity in every situation as your own. There it is. You're a child of God son or daughter. Nicodemus came with his grunt identity in the night in chapter 3, but he comes back to Jesus in chapter 19. Jesus at this point is dead. He's been 
been crucified. It's a very hostile world. The powers have circled around Jesus and appear victorious. And in that moment, who comes, who comes to treat the body with spices? But Nicodemus. You see, he does believe. And this proves that he's got a grace identity because he's acting with great courage and true originality. He's resisting the entire world to come and be identified with Jesus in that moment. I know who I am. I'm a son of God. So finally, let me ask you, how do you think about yourself tonight? And how do you want Jesus to affect how you think about yourself? How should Jesus shift the way you answer the question, who am I? I want to take you back into that loft in San Francisco. Would you engage your imagination? You can close your eyes if you want, but I want you to go just imagine a loft in San Francisco with nothing but windows and sunlight streaming in and flooding the place with beauty. Let's even think of it now as S-O-N light, the light of Jesus Christ radiating through that place. And there you sit in a chair, and behind a curtain, God sits at a drafting table. God. He's got a piece of paper in front of him, and he's asking you to describe yourself so that he can draw the truest picture of who you are. And so he says, tell me about yourself. What are you going to tell him? Are you going to tell him what you do, do, do? Or are you going to tell him what Jesus Christ has done? Are you going to talk about how you want the world to see you? How you want God to see you? How you'd even like to see yourself? Or are you going to tell him about how you see the Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to give you power to become a daughter or a son? Because that's what you could do. You could take credit for everything that Jesus is. And you could speak, even though you're speaking about yourself, you could speak of love and justice and purity and goodness and peacefulness, all these character qualities that belong to Jesus, but he's giving them to you. He's, he's delegating them to you, authorizing you to, to claim them as your own. If you were to do the latter, then God would pull that curtain back and you would see a picture of yourself for the very first time, a perfect, beloved child. Let's pray. God, our Father, You've brought us here tonight. And I pray for these brothers and sisters, if they've heard any voice other than my own, may they grant that it is your voice calling them home in your love. And we pray together for those who have not understood the gospel message and maybe have not known themselves to be Christians, to really be your children. We ask that they would pray together with us now as we say this prayer, simple prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for living the life that I could never live. Thank you for giving me your identity that I might know I myself am a child of God tonight and for all of eternity. I pray that you'll give me the assurance that I belong to you and that I'm a believer tonight. We do pray that, Father. We pray that for them. We pray that for all of us that having been made your children, we might learn to live more and more in that identity. So we forget. We forget so easily. Help us to wake up tomorrow morning, no matter what, and know whose we are and who is with us. We pray it for Jesus' sake, that he might receive all the glory. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, 
visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.